Crow talk. Crow talk. Crow talk. Just, Just like, like the men. men. Hello, gentle listener. As promised, we're back. We promised. We came back. Here we are. For a little conversation with a very special woman who changed our lives forever. For those of you just tuning in, just a quick little recap. We're filmmakers. We made our first feature film. An adaptation of a 100-year-old screenplay written by Elle Higginson at the turn of the 20th century, wherein she tells a tall tale of helping her friend run for political office in Washington state. P.S. It's all true. We decided to chop it all up and put it on TikTok because why not? And we're talking to women in the film industry that know more than we do about the experience. Hook, line, and sinker. I know a place where the sun is Chapter like 2, and the Laura Lafredo. So we already gave you a little overview about Laura Lafredo in episode one, but for those of you who didn't listen or forgot, she is an award-winning teacher, a specialist in early U.S. literature and cultures. Her most recent book is Selected Writings of Ella Higginson, Inventing Pacific Northwest Literature, which won the 2018 Society for the Study of American Women Writers Edition Award. She's a big deal interview, okay? So without further ado, let's get right into it. So tell us just a little bit about Ella Higginson. Like, give us a snapshot of just how much of a badass this gal was in her time. Ella Higginson, at the turn into the 20th century, was the most famous person in and from the Pacific Northwest in the world. There was no one who was even a close second. She was said to have put the Pacific Northwest on the literary map. And that, that was an accurate description of her, no question about it. Most people at the time would not come to the Pacific Northwest. They would not have the means. The Pacific Northwest was a very difficult place to get to. Once you got here, it was a very difficult place to make a living. However, having said that, its international reputation was at was of a place that was full of wild nature, majestic mountains trees beyond imagination, trees that were so thick that it was said only a squirrel could get between them. Um, one of the most beautiful places in the world, but a place where very few people would be able to, to visit or to live. And so what most people knew the, about the Pacific Northwest at the time, the way they were able to satisfy their curiosity was by reading Ella Higginson's writing. So what most people knew about the Pacific Northwest was what Ella Higginson had created in her poems and her fiction and her nonfiction. So when a, review in the, when a reviewer in the Chicago Tribune said that she may almost be said to have put the Pacific Northwest on the literary map, he was entirely correct. She did put the Pacific Northwest on the literary map. This is what everyone knew about the Pacific Northwest because of Ella Higginson. And so in that sense, she was very famous as a writer also, she was considered to be one of the leading American writers of the day. In her lifetime, she would publish over 800 works, so she was very prolific. Her work would be reprinted and reprinted and printed, reprinted over weeks and months and years and decades. She was widely anthologized. Many of her poems were set to music by the most famous composers of the day and then sung by, the poems were then sung by very well-known dramatic singers. So Ella Higginson was, by anybody's measure, a very prolific, famous, 
and critically praised writer of the day. It doesn't matter how many times we've heard you talk about Ella. It inspires me and like gets me excited every time. (laughs) I think something that always comes up for us too, as far as understanding how significant all of this is, as far as this, this absence of Ella from academia is your area of expertise in literature during this time, particularly focusing on women and not knowing about her. Absolutely. When I first saw Ella Higginson's name in the holdings of the Washington State Archives and saw that it said the Ella Higginson papers, and just at a glance could tell it was 12 linear feet of material, there were manuscripts, there were all kinds of documents. It was very clear that she had been an author. And I thought, who the heck is this? Um, even for women writers of the time who I might not have I might not have written on or published on, I certainly recognized their names and could tell you, you know, had read their works. I had never seen her name before in my life. Um, and that was very, it was very unusual. And at first, at first I was misled because I thought, okay, well, she must have been, you know, a, a little known regional writer or a local writer. It did not occur to me at the time what I would eventually come upon which is that she had been an extremely well-known women writer of the time who had had been completely forgotten. Is there any other authors out there, Laura, that you could compare Ella to? Sure, sure. Typically, um, women writers of the late 19th to the early 20th century and writers of color during that same period are writers who, despite really significant measures of fame, were completely forgotten. So, for instance, the best comparison is with Zora Neale Hurston, um, an African-American writer of the Harlem Renaissance, had won all kinds of awards. Her picture was on the um, cover of the Saturday Evening Post. She was so well known and she was so thoroughly forgotten that after Alice Walker, decades later, publishes The Color Purple, she starts looking around and starts thinking, were there any other black women writers like me? And so she looks back and finds books by this Zora Neale Hurston and tries to find her. It turns out that she misses her by a bit. Zora Neale Hurston has already died. But when she died, she was working as a maid in Florida. She was buried in an unmarked grave. The big thing that happens here is that this is when Alice Walker in 1975 in Ms. Magazine, at the peak of Ms. Magazine's popularity, writes the article looking for Zora, which is all about the whole process of finding her. And that makes everything explode. That year at the Modern Language Association Convention, which is the big convention for college English professors, there was one copy machine, one copy of Their Eyes Were Watching God, and a long snaking line of college professors, all with bags of change. So they could put it into the copy machine, make a copy of the book and be able to read their eyes were watching God for the very first time, which is mind blowing to think about now. And then if college professors can do anything, we can get on the phone. And so um, (laughs) they were on the phone with publishers saying, publish this book so we can teach it. And that brought Zora Neale Hurston back into prominence. So in in terms of her being forgotten, um, obviously, you know, the race things are, are, race issue is very different here because she was a black woman, Higginson was a white woman. But nonetheless, in terms of their being forgotten for decades, it's a very comparable kind of story. It's unfortunate that it's such a common story for women in history. It, It is, I mean, 
in recent years, I guess in the last few decades, it's gotten better. And one thing has really nicely led to another. So as women writers, as white women writers started being recovered, as we say, literary recovery, then black women writers, then Native American writers, Asian American, and, and then even now looking back. So for instance, right now, there's a lot of work going on in terms of um, pandemic readings of earlier literature, which is fascinating stuff. Mm. Because once you start thinking things have been forgotten, things have been neglected, once you start thinking women have been forgotten and neglected, well, then you make various steps thinking who else has been forgotten and neglected. So, mm -hmm. um, so for instance, there's various trans readings coming out now. There's things that people saw but never focused on in looking back at past texts. So it does allow for a real, a real, um, a real richness of revival, even if it's not very good at all that these things were forgotten in the first place. Right. Silver lining. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, yeah. silver lining. <laughs> Silver lining for the pandemic, for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's interesting, just in that same vein, you know, um, we thought maybe you could speak about who Ella wanted to cast as Mrs. Carlton in the film, because uh, that's another legacy that's sort of been forgotten in our modern it's culture. When, when Ella Higginson began writing screenplays, she began and fell immediately in love with the genre and had written to a friend, I have screenplay-itis, and that when she finished the screenplay she was working on, if it was not produced, she was going to write another one. So what she might have had in mind when she was writing her screenplay for Just Like the Men, particular actresses, we don't know. I do suspect that she very well may have had Mary Pickford in mind herself, but certainly once she sent the play to a New York agency, everybody in the office, according to the agent, read the play and said, this is the perfect part for Mrs. Pickford. And the script was then sent to Mary Pickford. Now, had Mary Pickford agreed to this, had this, had Just Like the Man been produced with Mary Pickford starring in, in it, I don't think Higginson ever would have been forgotten or she wouldn't have been as completely forgotten because it was at this moment that Mary Pickford was by all means, not only the most powerful woman in Hollywood, she was the most powerful person in Hollywood. So this, she, she brought a lot of juice with her and would have brought a lot of juice to the role in Just Like the Men of Mrs. Carlton. Now, what she might have thought of that role, uh, that correspondence has not been recovered. I, I assume there was some correspondence. I have not yet given up hope or more, um, more of a paper trail regarding just like the men and why it was not produced. I have not yet given up hope for that, that um, some letters um, appearing at some point. It's got to be out there, you know? It's out there. Somewhere you know, in Hollywood. I'm always the optimist with that stuff. Well, but I'm always, I used to say these things have been lost. And then I would say these things have not yet been recovered. And now I'm just not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying anything because um, it's always, it's shocking to me what shows up on a regular basis that, that I didn't know was out there at all. Things, things are being recovered all the time. And just, I think last year, or the year before, they just found some letters of Benjamin Franklin's in England. And Benjamin Franklin was and always has been an extremely famous person. And if his letters can be misplaced, who knows what else might be out there? Oh, so, totally. Not, so not exciting. Yet, 
And if I hear anything, I will be texting you guys <laughs> in the morning. Wake up! As Telegram! Yeah. <laughs> it's me! Wake up! Wake up now! And we ah! will. Yeah, we will. It's like... <laughs> I want to make sure we talked about putting in per- into perspective how big this discovery is, this body of work. The, the discovery of Ella Higginson as the most famous Pacific Northwest writer and as a major writer of American literature at the turn into the 20th century really cannot be understated, especially in terms of the body and the history of American literature. When when the centenary of Nathaniel Hawthorne's birth was about to be celebrated, all major American writers were asked to write tributes to Hawthorne. Hawthorne long dead at this point, of course, Ella Higginson, absolutely one of the authors who was called upon to do so. Hmm. Higginson being recovered recovers the earlier period of written literature for the Pacific Northwest, number one. It recovers the place of the Pacific Northwest in the American literary canon, number two. And number three, it recovers an internationally famous American writer who had been very influential in her time and who had been forgotten. So you're moving from you're moving from the very regional in that before the recovery of Ella Higginson, written Pacific Northwest literature really begins with someone like Ken Kesey, maybe even even you know later Sherman Alexie, and, and he's still alive. That's not a very early history. So it begins locally in terms of recovering Pacific Northwest history, but then much larger nationally in terms of recovering an essential part of the American literary canon. And then internationally, in terms of a late 19th, early 20th century American writer who was internationally influential. So um, I don't think the recovery of Ella Higginson can be understated. And when my book, my edited collection of Higginson's writings was awarded the Society for the Study of American Women Writers Edition Award, that was a a real signal of, of the importance of Higginson's being reincorporated into the body of American literature and the body of American women's literature also. Is that just surreal to sit with sometimes, Laura? Like to just (laughs) sit there and be like, you're like the first point of contact really now to Ella. And like, that's gotta be, like I just imagine you sitting on your couch, like staring at the wall sometimes being like, what, what did I uncover here? It will, it will always for me be a hallmark of my career in a variety of ways that theoretically I knew a great deal about the recovery of American women writers before I became responsible for the recovery of an American woman writer myself. I I never expected to go from the theoretical to the very practical quite so quickly. (laughs) It has also been a pleasure in that it happened so very quickly and my understanding my understanding grew by leaps and bounds pretty much every day from starting with the idea that this was a a prolific local woman writer to eventually understanding the significance that she had. And also the deep pleasure of sharing her writing with my students and with other people in the Pacific Northwest, where typically when we out here read American literature, we're reading earlier American literature, we're reading Hawthorne, we're reading Melville, we're reading maybe Harriet Beecher Stowe, if we get lucky, Sarah Orne Jewett. But these are all things that are, are said in other parts of the nation. 
to read our own region coming to life in American literature, it has been a deep pleasure to share that with people. And has, it's been a, a great sense of Pacific Northwest pride too, both for me and for the people to whom I've introduced her writing. You've created a cult following. Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. And it's, I think what's super powerful to acknowledge is, is all the women that have worked and continue working in a way that's very formative for our culture and our society. I'm thinking about the beginning of Hollywood to bring it to film, since that's the context of our conversation. Absolutely. Women were running Hollywood and they were in charge in an, in an executive way and had a lot of power, but it's still, for whatever reason, whether it's we exclude or we just don't even have expect women to be at that level, it doesn't get preserved and it doesn't become a part of the narrative. That I think, that I think is crucial. There is the, um, the significant difference between what women did and what women achieved and the way the historical record did not inscribe the actions, the behaviors, and the accomplishments of those women. It is a deep pleasure of the 21st century to have women in all fields, have their work in, in the past in all fields being uncovered in ways that continue to be su surprising. So as much as so many of these women, right, were utter, their, their works were utterly forgotten, their acts were utterly forgotten, what remains is that they performed these things, they did these things, they accomplished them. They had very real, accomplished, hardworking, fulfilling lives in a whole variety of fields. And even if the historical record was too limited to recognize those efforts, those efforts are now being recognized. Even the, um, the series, the obituary series now through the New York Times, where obituaries are being written and published about women who should have had such obituaries in the New York Times in, in decades past, right? Even that, it's, it's a better late than never thing. And as much as, I would, as much as I would never disparage the importance of the historical record or the importance of the historical record being accurate, I don't let that get in my way in terms of the lives that these women led, that they were able to lead these lives and accomplish the things they accomplished, that Mary Pickford was able to be Mary Pickford and do everything that she did. That's worth it to me. It would be better if things had been clearer and more accurate right from the start in terms of the wide diversity of people who were operating in the world. But if we can't have that, if the historical record has to be narrow for a whole variety of reasons in terms of which cultural agents were in charge of it at what point. If we can't have that, I am not going to let that get me down. I'm not going to let it erase, erase the idea that these women found their way in the world and led richly fulfilling lives despite the cultural obstacle. And that just seems to be carrying on the whole spirit of sisterhood and you know, the whole spirit of suffrage and Absolutely. and what women have been and continue to work towards inequality. Absolutely. At the time in the late 19th, early 20th century, it was not easy for many women to be in the same room with other women. They were, they were too busy. They were too overwhelmed. There were cultural strictures against it for various reasons. So they had to work so much harder than we do now in order to share their experience with other women. And that, that makes me 
it makes me admire them even more and and always try to stay aware of the fact that the path I'm walking on, the path that we're all walking on, is one that was worn smooth by so many women before us, some of whom had, had richly fulfilling lives, some of whom had fulfilling lives that were nonetheless deeply tragic, but they kept going in order to clear the way for women like us. Yeah, this entire project, of course the film for us, but just Ella's whole story and, and sharing her story with a network of women today in our community is Absolutely. for me the most special part of it, even outside of like, yeah, Ella and just like the men itself. It's like, it's that spirit carrying on with, with women, seeing other women doing the same thing and forging along this now smoother trail, but like linking arms and, and Absolutely. joining forces and like continuing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I would, I would never, I would never underestimate that. And even before I really knew what I was getting into on this project, when I got my first big local publicity on the front page of the Bellingham Herald, a few days later, I got a little card in the, in the postal mail. And it was from an elderly woman who since passed, who um, lived out in the county. And she had, been, she had been hardcore satisfied to see Ella Higginson's name in the paper and had written to me telling me that her, her deceased husband, when he had been a young man, had been Ella Higginson's yard keeper at the end of her life. And that Ella Higginson had given him several gifts and they had always admired her. They were old enough to remember how famous she was. And to have this connection with her, she wrote me this note, she underlined all these words. She read that article in the paper and here we have two women who, who would never, we, would, we never met in person, but we had that connection and it was a shared connection through understanding the significance of Ella Higginson. It charmed me entirely, and this was very early in the project, and made me feel that what was happening was, um, was worthwhile as, um, as a connection across and among women. Mm -hmm. It really does feel magical, like it for does. lack of a better word. It, it does. always does. I always get goosebumps when talking about her and like just this like deep inspiration and, and like drive almost. It's like when we get finished talking about Ella, I always want to go and like <laughs> create anything. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? it, it's a reminder for me because I think speaking for myself, I can sometimes get stuck in the narrative of uh, there are not enough women in power or not enough women behind the wheel. And that creates this idea of a, a lack and a gap. And that certainly is true in comparison, Absolutely. but it is so important to remember and rejoice that these women have been here. Like you said, Laura have been paving the way for us. And we just, sometimes I'm unconsciously walking down that path, not knowing Absolutely. that. So just that knowing Absolutely. is everything. They gave up so much and they gave it up willingly and fearlessly in order to move forward. They could not imagine our lives. They could certainly not imagine you guys. They could certainly not imagine me, but they had a faith in the idea that if you lived your life true to your ideals and tried to be everything you thought, most of these women were religious, everything you thought your God had created you to be, that that would create a future, right? that would be better across the board. There was a, a panel discussion that I was told about a couple weeks ago about, um, about American women's biography. And one of the panelists mentioned me and said, and she is the only biographer, I have not finished my biography, but she is the only biographer I know 
whose subject has had, you know, a movie made about her work, right? I know, I know, I like it. Wow, 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 We became very public. (laughs) No big deal, no big deal. No big deal. It's us. (laughs) (laughs) I think something that's been really nice and and re-illuminating about these interviews that we've been doing for this podcast is shining the light on that there are women out there doing the work still and Stacy, I agree with you where I get a little mired and like and it could be because just like the men is about women in politics but just in like the patriarchy and like screw the patriarchy and and not giving enough attention to women that are out there right now doing cool things and that have been out there you know during harder times doing cool things and that's continued to come up throughout these interviews which has been really refreshing (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like a refreshing grounding reminder like I think, you we're know, all out there yeah grounding mm-hmm. is the right word there and and don't be hard on yourself for, for you know almost losing sight of these things sometimes I mean the larger received notions in this world it, it is what it is the larger received notions in this world even as we speak even given all the progress we've made the larger received notions are that this is a white supremacist patriarchy. That's what it is. No, no group of people has gotten together in a room and said, we will send out all these signals about a white supremacist patriarchy. But having said that, we are surrounded by information about that on a very regular basis. And it can be very hard, even even for people who have a real self-awareness and a real feminist commitment, not to lose sight of this because we are being pressed so hard with notions of whiteness, and with notions of maleness and with notions of an elite class. That's an important thing to remember. You know, we're living in the picture. We're in the picture, you know? And so- No question about it. Yeah, we, we do have to be gentle. We're on the same planet that everybody else was on. We're under the same sun. We're under the same moon. Things Ugh. seem different, but in, in ways they are and in ways they are not at all. And anytime it feels hard or or unfair, which it does, of course, all the time. Anytime that happens, you have to remember we're we're following an awful long line of women um, who had who couldn't imagine us, but have faith that that people like us would that women like us would exist. I just yeah. love all of this so now. freaking much. Laura Lafredo changed our lives and continues to inspire us. If you couldn't already tell by listening to this interview, like the woman inspires us every time we're able to connect with her. Every time. So our next interview is with Aaron Jones. We met Aaron on a panel we were all on for the We Ignite conference back in, oh, 2020, where we talked about the inherent racism of women's suffrage in America. And it was illuminating. Erin's very similar to Laura in the sense that every time we're able to speak with her, we walk away with so much inspiration and drive in different sectors of our life than I would have even anticipated going into these conversations. Same. I always feel that a conversation with Erin is transformative. So, yeah, we're going to talk more about the political significance of Just Like the Men, which is satirizing Ella's real-life experience campaigning for her friend, Frances C. Stell, who ultimately became one of the first women to hold office in Washington State before 1920. Uh, so it's a really great opportunity to unpack the women's suffrage narrative a bit with Erin as she has experience running for office in Washington State. 
It's the episode I am most honored to be a part of and a conversation I'm honored to sit in and listen to. We're going to sit in some discomfort. We're going to revel in joy. And we all get to benefit from listening to the wonderful, the immaculate, the incredible Aaron Jones. It will be a worthwhile listen. Till next time. Bye-bye. If you work, if you wait, you will find the place where the four-leaf clovers grow. Where the four-leaf clovers grow. Where the four-leaf clovers grow. I think we should do like maybe one or two more times. Okay.